Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. We're on Chapter 3. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. And there, for $5 a month, you can support the podcast. Let's get on with the story. Chapter 3 From our shrouds we view a rising land like distant clouds. The mountaintops confirm the pleasing sight, and curling smoke ascending from their height. The canvas falls, the oars the sailors ply, from the rude strokes the whirling waters fly. Virgil One morning, after we had left Rio, I said to Bon Tomps the boatswain, It's a strange thing, my friend, but there does not seem to be a single rat on this ship. I saw a curious, frightened look creep into the eyes of that sturdy seaman. No, he said in a most mournful way. No, Captain, that is very unlucky for us. I am sore afraid we have seen the last of our good fortune. I knew what was passing through his mind. That rats leave a sinking ship is a proverb in all languages of the sea, and because we had no rats on board, Bon Tomps believed that we were doomed. I laughed at him and called him a superstitious old rogue, but he was not to be teased into cheerfulness, and he went about his work moodily and muttering dismal forebodings. Then a little tragedy happened, which I am sure confirmed his belief in our unlucky destiny. I have mentioned our black one-eyed cat. A black cat on board is supposed to charm away the evil spirits that call a ship to destruction, and all had gone well, or pretty well, as long as Puss in Boots patrolled the deck or climbed onto the boom to make faces at the seabirds, or sat in the bows like a little black figurehead. But soon after we had left Rio, the cat had a fatal accident. It was playing on one of the rails when it suddenly conceived the idea of jumping to the deck. It sprang, but too far out, and dropped into the sea, where it was quickly drowned before we could even attempt a rescue. To Bon Tomps, it seemed like the last nail in our coffin, and he was not at all surprised when we were overtaken by a terrific storm. We took most of our canvas down and lay to, drifting out of our course with bare sticks. The sea was mountains high, and as those great rolling waves came tearing towards us, the little J.B. Charcot plunged down into deep valleys and then surged up again and was shaken like a rat on the summits of those water mountains before lurching forward again into the depths. It was at midnight, just as I was going off watch, when the storm began and it blew for twenty-four hours. The wind came raging at us as though invisible monsters were seeking to devour us. One could hear each gust coming with a loud booming, and as it caught us, each rope was lashed like a whip and the furies shrieked about the ship. The little Jébique Charcot was quivering and trembling. Each timber was strained as she staggered and lurched and plunged, buffeted on port side and starboard, by wind that came always at once. It was not an ordinary storm, but a cyclone, sweeping round in a circle of hundreds of miles in circumference. Then suddenly, at ten o'clock on the following night, the wind died down. After the wild tumult, we were in a dead calm. We stood in the heart of the cyclone, in the calm centre of a hurricane which was still whirling around us, but miles away. It was indeed the strangest, most uncanny thing to be becalmed in the middle of that cyclone, to see the ropes run slack and the canvas hang limp, and to feel hardly a breath of wind upon our faces. 
We had not been able to hear our own voices in the gale, but now when we spoke, our words startled our own ears, and a profound silence brooded amongst us. It is the ominous silence that haunts one with superstitious fears. Even Patrick seemed to be scared of the mystery of it, and listened intently with pricked ears, and whined as he sniffed over the bulwarks and stared into the darkness. This dead calm lasted until 4am. Then a buffet of wind smacked us with a staggering blow, and the silence was broken by the low, dull roar of the advancing storm, and our small ship seemed to groan and shudder with pitiful terror. We had left the calm centre of the cyclone, and the fury was upon us again. For five days the storm raged, and we shipped heavy seas, and there were moments when death seemed very close to us. But the J.B. Charcot was a good boat. Her courage and strength were tried and proved. My brother and I were proud of her. I was a little proud of myself, for my choice of that old hull lying dry beached in Boulogne had been a sound one. She leaked a little, but not much, and though we pumped at every watch, we did not discover much water in the hold. Oak built by good shipwrights, the timbers of this fishing catch were sturdy and strong and seaworthy. My anxiety during those days and nights of storm was rewarded by the consoling knowledge that the J.B. Charcot had come through without damage and without shaking our confidence in the prospects of landing with dry clothes on the island of desolation. We should not have to swim to those uninhabited rocks. After the storm, we rode on a buoyant keel over the great blue sea with our wings full spread and soaring forwards like a homing bird. We were bound for Tristan de Cunha, our last resting place on the road to Kogulian, 6,000 miles further on the trail. Twenty days from Rio, we sighted the three islands of that lonely group out in the South Atlantic and saw, rising clear into the blue sky, the snow-capped summit of that extinct volcano which soars 7,640 feet above the cliffs and the green slopes of the grass-grown plateau. When the J.B. Charcot neared these islands, we first tried to effect a landing on the one called Inaccessible. We launched one of our light, flat-bottomed boats and pulled towards shore, but seeing the surf beating on the narrow beach at the foot of the huge cliffs, and having no mind to smash our craft and to lose our lives on such a coast, we returned to our ship. By this time, we had been seen by the people of Tristan, and several men belonging to that farthest and loneliest outpost of the great British Empire came out to greet us in two canvas boats. The sea was too heavy for them to come aboard, but as they passed close alongside, one of them called out in English of a strange dialect, as it seemed to my brother, that we should do well to put out further from the coast for the night. I knew enough of dirty weather on a lee shore to appreciate the value of his advice. Then, since conversation between us and the men in the tossing boats was difficult, we let over in a bottle a message for the people with whom we hoped to make friends, and having seen them pick it up, stood out to sea. We were in need of fresh meat and green stuff to enliven our daily menu of preserved food, and it seemed to us that the people of Tristan de Cunha would be glad to make a fair exchange for articles for which they also must be yearning. In our bottle message, therefore, we gave a list of the things we were willing to let them have, articles which, in a village without shops and beyond the reach of parcels post, they could only get from visiting vessels such as gunpowder, salt, sugar and tea, and asked them to let us have in exchange sheep, poultry, potatoes and other produce which we knew from our books were obtainable on the island. We were not entirely ignorant of Tristan and its people and its ways, 
for during our passage we had studied one or two blue books giving reports from ships that had touched at the island, and this had aroused great curiosity in us to meet this little colony of voluntary Robinson Crusoes, who seemed to be as happy as a day is long on a rock which affords them none of those amusements, luxuries and comforts of life which seem so necessary to civilised men and women. We were eager to make acquaintance with them and to see the houses they had built up, to know how they worked and lived and to study the characteristics of families who were bound together by close kinship in a commonwealth without distinction of class or property. As I have said, we stood out to sea for the night. Next day we found ourselves becalmed almost out of sight of land. There we lay all day and our patience was severely taxed. Henry and I were looking forward to getting new knowledge of strange people, but other members of the crew were prompted by different motives. When LaRose heard of the message enclosed in the bottle, our request for sheep and poultry seemed to him the most reasonable thing we had done for many a long day. He thoroughly approved of this method of barter, and would, I am sure, have given away all our ship's tools in return for a nice plump sheep or a well-fed duck. The vision of such things made his mouth water, for he had the explorer's instinct and was devoted to the acquisition of new experiences in the nature of food. Agne practised a few tunes on his accordion in order to do himself justice before a greater audience than he could find on shipboard. Esno, the cook, liked the notion of stretching his legs outside his galley, though he anticipated heavier work when the livestock was brought on board. Only Bontomps accepted the situation philosophically as an old sailor who has nothing more to see and to admire in this world so wide, and to whom the enforced idleness of a calm is part of the day's work. In any case, it was doubtful whether there was a tobacconist shop in Tristan, so what use had the island for him? It was not until the following morning that a breeze sprang up which enabled us to again stand in towards the island. Putting an empty cask in our biggest boat so that I might get a fresh supply of water, I was rowed ashore by Agnes and La Rose. As I went near, I could see that the inhabited and cultivated portion of the island was a strip of land at the northwest corner, eight or nine miles long, and of an average width of one and a half miles, formed, as I found afterwards, by an overflow of lava from the crater lips. This is really the only part of the island of any use to mankind. The rest of it, 21 miles round, is grim and barren and rugged. There is no harbour, but a broad belt of seaweed growing off the shore at a distance about two miles serves in a measure as a natural breakwater. The landing place is near a cascade which tumbles down the side of the cliff and rushes across the shingly beach in white foam. On the top of the line of low cliffs, I could see grassy meadowlands, very cool and green to the eye, with a cluster of cottages, and beyond, mountain slopes, leading the vision to the high conical peak which is the centre of the island. While I had been taking in these details, we had neared the beach and saw that twenty men had gathered there to drag in our boat as it was washed ashore by the dangerous breakers. They were a curious-looking crowd, rough and picturesque, but as regards their clothes, not unlike the fisherfolk of my own native Brittany. Most of them wore blue cotton jackets and trousers, obtained, it seemed, from American whalers. On their feet, they wore rough moccasins made from bullock skin, and among the first things they asked for were any old leather shoes that we could spare. They gave us a hearty welcome when we jumped out of the boats, and although at that time I spoke very little English, we had no difficulty in getting on excellent terms with each other. They wrung me repeatedly by the hand, as though it were a delight to them to see a fresh face. They asked me where I had come from, 
and were fairly amazed when they heard that we had voyaged so many thousand miles since leaving Brixham Harbour in England. In that little boat, they cried, how is it that you were not shipwrecked? We would not trust ourselves upon such a tiny thing. La Rose and Agne were greeted by them with equal cordiality, although those two knew no more English than yes and all right. I could see no real sign of physical degeneration and none of mental decadence among these men, in spite of the absolute necessity among them of intermarrying to a degree which in civilised lands would be regarded as highly dangerous. It is true that some of them were of small stature and rather thin, but even these appeared wiry and active. One man among them was distinguished by a really fine physique. He stood up tall and broad and carried himself with an outward air of dignity and almost of command. It seemed to me, by the way in which the others behaved to him and by the authoritative way in which he spoke to us on the subject of barter and exchange, that he was in the position of chief. Indeed, I asked who was the chief, but they said they had none, for all were equal. The man introduced himself, however, by the name of Andreas Repetto, and asked whether I would go to his house and take a little meal with his wife and family. I was, of course, delighted to accept this invitation, and on the way up from the landing place, my new friend told me that he had been shipwrecked on Tristan from the Italia about 14 years ago. He was a Genoese by birth, and with a fellow shipmate, Gantano Landrello, he had been cast ashore. He had decided at once that this island was to be his home, not because it was the most attractive spot in the world, but because it was dry land and could not very well be wrecked. Other ships had touched the island since he had been domiciled there, and he had had an opportunity of getting away, but he had declined all such offers. Never again, he said, would he put foot upon the deck of a vessel after one deliverance from death by drowning. This seemed to me strange, for the man told me that he had served on an Italian man of war in his youth, and I could not understand that a sailor by profession should have such a dread of the sea. I am now a married man, he said, and speak English, as you will see, almost like my native tongue. My wife is a good woman, like all of them here, and I am very happy as the father of a fine family. After all, what more does a man want? I have my little home, there is enough to eat, the sky is above my head, and the good God is in his heaven, as close to us here as in my native Genoa. As a sailor myself, it seemed to me pitiful and indeed incredible that a fine man like this, trained to the sea, should moulder his life away on a barren rock when he might be following the free and open life which, to my mind, is the best in the world. But to each his own. All the men who had helped to drag us through the surf were following behind, and I heard their laughter as they spoke incomprehensible words to my two comrades. Our arrival had brought other inhabitants down from their cottages to gaze at us. Among them were many women and children. The little ones were pretty and fairy-like in clean white calico frocks, with white woolen stockings and small calfskin shoes which gave them as they danced around us the appearance of those little novices of the corps de ballet of whom one sees pictures in the illustrated papers or on the boards of a French operetta. Indeed, this impression was vivid to my mind because the scene itself was no unfitting stage for a fairy play. The green meadow in the background, a waterfall between its leafy banks, the white surf breaking on the shore beyond, the sunlight shedding a rich golden glow upon the island were almost unreal in its effect upon my senses. The women were by no means unattractive, though I do not pretend to be a judge of feminine beauty. Some of them showed traces of more exotic blood, having slightly fuzzy hair and sallow complexions, due, as I was afterwards told, to some coloured women who had been shipped from St Helena and the Cape to become the wives of the first settlers. 
The others were of the fair Scandinavian type. Many of them had flaxen hair, oval faces with narrow aquiline noses and rather thin, well-formed lips, such as one may see in England or Denmark. They are not exempt from the temptations of beautifying their personal appearance, which beset all daughters of Eve. They are especially fond of gay colours, and it was delightful to see how they made use of any coloured rag which they had been able to obtain from passing or shipwrecked vessels. For instance, on their heads were cotton handkerchiefs such as sailors kept in their lockers, and here and there the blouse and skirt, which are their usual garments, were made of the coloured striped shirts which seamen can buy in most any port. In expression, they were not exactly sad or melancholy, but their eyes had a wistful look as they gazed at us, and some of the young men and children were obviously shy and embarrassed when I happened to look their way. The children were all bright and cheerful, and their parents were obviously contented with their lot and on good terms with each other. As long as I was in the island, I heard no quarrelling voices and saw no sign of ill-temper. As Andreas Repetto led me up the hill, we came in sight of the little straggling group of cottages, about fifteen or sixteen in number, which are dotted about on either side of the rivulet, which feeds the cascade. I noticed that they were built of a soft stone, which I was told was brought from the higher slopes of the mountain, an arduous labour. They were built more or less on the same plan, one story high under a thatched roof and about thirty feet long by ten broad. Attached to each house was a pen enclosed by a stone wall in which the people kept their sheep, calves and other livestock. Most of them also had small outhouses for lumber. I was pleased to see that they were of a cleanly disposition and that no unsightly or evil-smelling heaps of refuse were allowed near the dwelling places. It amused me to notice the pigs roaming about in a free and easy way. Of these beasts, said Repetto, they were about forty on the island. Outside one of the cottage was a wagon drawn by two yoked oxen. It was a small, roughly built affair on solid wheels, and it had been brought out to carry up from the shore any stores which we might be in position to offer. It seemed to me at first that there was a flower garden in front of each cottage, but looking over the wall I saw that nothing grew but long tussock grass. What on earth do you grow that for? I asked, and Repetto told me that it was cultivated for the purpose of repairing their thatched roofs. I am bound to say the thatch was rather primitive and tufts of long grass grew out of it. Repetto welcomed us across his threshold and introduced me into the bosom of his family. Mrs. Repetto was a buxom lady, anxious to feed me, welcome me and make me thoroughly at home, and his brood of children had something of an Italian look, although they spoke the English tongue. There were two rooms in this small house, and most of the woodwork had been obtained from ships wrecked on the rocky coast. I observed, for example, a piece of wood from a ship's stern in one of the rooms, and I could clearly read the name Mabel Clark. Repetto, following my glance, answered my unspoken question. That is a bit of an American boat which went to pieces here in 77. She was bound from Liverpool to Hong Kong with coal when she struck our rocks, and two people were drowned before we went out to the rescue of the crew. It was a hard struggle to get out through the heavy breakers, but they brought off the survivors and, at a good deal of sacrifice to themselves, fed and housed them until October in the following year. Naturally, this was a big strain on the resources of the island, for as a rule, it is as much we can do to keep our own souls and bodies together. Finally, an American man of war, the Essex, called and took them away. Then, in February 1880, the English man of war, Commerce, brought our people from the Yankee government a good many useful presents as a reward for what had been done. 
A few months later, another English vessel, the Miranda, brought to our old friend, William Green, a medal from the Shipwrecked Mariner Society. He was proud of it, I can tell you. It is not often the outside world takes such an interest in Tristan. It did us a bit of good, too. One of my first memories is of HMS Rally bringing a hundred pounds worth of stores to the island in August of 1894 as a present from the Britishers. It was to recognise the services of the Tristan folk when the Allen Shore was wrecked in March of the year before. Repetto had a good memory for the few historical events that Tristan had ever known. I brought a bottle of wine and some cakes along with me as a little offering of courtesy to my hosts. They were immensely pleased and were happy to give me tea. A little fuss took place which I noticed with quiet amusement. Someone left the cottage and Repetto, in his simple way, told me that they had been sent to borrow the only bread recently baked in the island which belonged to the parson and his wife. I had a long conversation with my new friend in rather halting English, eked out by a little French of which Repetto had a small vocabulary, and I asked him several questions about the way of life in Tristan. Their chief hardship is the getting of wood from the distant hills, as they have already cut down all those stunted trees which grew near the settlement. The wood has to be gathered six miles from their homes, rolled down the mountains and loaded onto the bullock wagons. I formed the impression that one of these days they will have to leave the island altogether for lack of fuel. I remember that one of my questions was, do you ever quarrel? Repetto laughed and said, the man never, we live like brothers. But women, of course, they will have their little tiffs. We spent some days in Tristan, during which I learnt a good deal about the island and its little population, and made friends with the clergyman and his wife, Mr. and Mrs. Barrow, who were charming people and most kind and hospitable. LaRose had already picked up an acquaintance with them, for while I had been taking tea with the Repettos, he had, by some means or other, found his way to that abode, where he enjoyed himself vastly. I think my first meal in the clergyman's home deserves to be put on record, for it is one of my most delightful memories. The following is the menu. Leg of mutton, potatoes, lime juice, tea. The Hotel Metropole of any capital in Europe could not have provided a banquet which would have given more satisfaction than this modest meal after my long spell on ship's victuals. Mr. Barrow told me that he had come to the island as a kind of pious pilgrimage. He had often heard of the generous and kindly way in which the islanders had devoted themselves to the care of shipwrecked men and women, and he determined to go to them and live among them in order that he might be their teacher and give them Christian ministrations. From this good clergyman, I obtained a great deal of interesting information about the history of Tristan and the life of the islanders, which amplified greatly what I had already learnt from the reports of British seamen. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, 
get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.